if other people uh, had fears that you thought were irrational, you could belittle them by saying that it's just a, a bug. You're afraid of a bug. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we talked the last couple of weeks about a couple of sensationalistic kind of projects at a couple of universities trying to eliminate words and trying to bring words back into circulation, these kind of publicity stunts around language that always attract my attention, and I'm sure they attract your attention too, and then uh, sometimes you end up with a little disappointed in the results of your search, but they just can't stop putting these things up that attract us, can they? Yeah. Well, I found one last night I just wanted to pass on. I know you have some things you want to talk about, but I want to just mention quickly... um, I found a New York Times article about the disappearing period. Have you heard about this? Oh. Well, the period is disappearing. <laughs> oh, bet you didn't know. Hadn't noticed, had you? Oh. Yeah. Well, it was a, a comment by David Crystal or a press release by David Crystal, who's famous for being a pronunciation expert on Shakespeare. Right. Right. Uh, consults for the Globe, and he also has written several books on English language and English usage. Um, he came out with a comment that the period is disappearing, or as he would say, the full stop is disappearing because he's coming from the UK. I was wondering whether if the period stopped, it's replaced by a pregnant pause. <laughs> well, uh, who knows what's going on in your head? But as you read the article, uh, the article kind of cheats and uses no periods, but it gets away with it because every paragraph of the article is a full sentence. So it's much less noticeable when it's the end of the paragraph. There's a period missing because you don't really need it at the end of a paragraph. But part of the point is, and I wasn't aware of this part, and you may be, but I'm not, is there is some thought among some users of texting and Twitter that if you use a period, it is for emphasis, <laughs> as if that's the final word, period. Uh, I was not aware of this at all, but uh, apparently it's a phenomenon. I'll just take their word for it. Uh, nevertheless, I'm not worried about the disappearing period, are you? No, but I have noticed uh, occasionally a post on a board online where somebody is telling a long story and they just don't know how to use periods or sentences. They just Everything is one long sentence. It just goes on and on and on and 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 and. and. It doesn't seem to be a deliberate stylistic choice, but just somebody that doesn't write much. Um, Although I notice that when I'm on Facebook, I'm usually posting photographs. That's the main reason for my Facebook page. And sometimes they put a very short caption with a photograph. And sometimes that caption is in the form of a sentence. And sometimes it's just a label, like the name of a flower. Um, So I might say pansy, no period. This is a pansy, period. Mm -hmm. But um, I found the other day, I, I put up, one and I had used a, a short sentence and I didn't put a period at the end and uh, after I saved it I thought should I go back and fix that and I thought nah it's really just a caption so forget it yeah I think in captions uh, dropping the period can be a, an excellent stylistic choice 
But in typical writing, where you are writing paragraphs that actually have more than one sentence in them, it's a helpful little device to show that you've finished one sentence and you're moving on to the next. Another point is that in this article, this New York Times article, I'm finding more and more since I no longer have my paper subscription to the New York Times, I only read it online and uh, on my phone. I'm finding more and more information out of the comments section often than I am out of the articles themselves. And many people pointed out that in ancient texts, those punctuation marks, of course, don't exist. Right. And that is a big puzzle for scholars to debate over where one thing begins and the other thing ends. And uh, it creates a lot of problems. But the thing is, with punctuation, I think we solved some of those problems. So why would we want to go tossing away again? In ancient Greek, they didn't even separate the words (laughs) to figure out which characters belong with which words. Uh This reminds me of something I've kind of admired recently about my iPhone. Um, I don't type very much. I'm not proficient with my thumbs. They're just too big for the (laughs) tiny little space. And I'm a touch typist of the traditional sort. But um, when I'm texting or writing an email on my phone, it puts in a word that I've typed. And then if I'm using their the word that's automatically suggested, the, um, what do they call it, autotype or whatever. Sure, yeah, suggestions or whatever, yeah. It puts a blank at the end of the inserted word. But if I decide that's the end of the sentence and want a punctuation, whether a comma, exclamation point, period, or whatever, it goes back and moves it over to the left so that the cursor is no longer parked out waiting for a continuation of the same sentence or the same phrase. Uh, it puts punctuation where it should go. And that didn't used to be the case. I thought that was pretty smart in some programmers' parts. Sure, yeah. And it helps you as you move along and you're typing your thing. And that's part of the point, too, is that texting is getting more sophisticated and phones are getting more sophisticated for texting and allowing you to do stuff like that. So these excuses of, well, I have to hold down too many keys to type the period or, you know, I have to hit the shift key or whatever. I don't see any of those excuses holding any water, but... Um, Anyway, you know, the sensationalism of usage points and, you know, disappearing language and so on, we'll see a steady stream of that, I predict. But on this podcast, uh, we tend to talk about more interesting things, I think. Yeah. I think you have something, don't you? Right. I'm going to talk about bugs. (laughs) Okay. Well, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The word bug, it occurred to me the other day, has an awful lot of different meanings. Uh, very far removed from each other sometimes. And it's just one of those uh, words where a whole lot of different uh, functions have gotten attached to a single thing. And we've got bug as a verb, bug as a noun, and some derivative words and just all kinds of them. When I looked up bug in the OED, it has a speculation, not absolutely confirmed, that it may have come from an old Welsh root meaning ghost. So the earliest uses of the OED lists are to label something imaginary that terrifies people. So you've got a bug, um, either, you know, a, a ghost in your house or some other terrifying creature that maybe the monster under the bed, whatever, would be a bug. Well, okay, so this precedes the use of the word as applied to insects, because yes. that's almost always what we think about, of course, is just insects. Right. And this use has mostly dropped out of use. The only really common one that's mentioned in the OED is the word bugbear. And even that, 
uh, I find more in English writing than American, and I don't think it's very common anymore, but it's sort of a hobgoblin in the shape of a bear originally, so it uh, was used to frighten children, saying, well, a bugbear will get you if you're naughty. Now, on that point, I found something on my own, um, the bugbear and the word bug related to ghosts was the possible connection to the boogeyman. Aha. Uh-huh. The boogeyman himself, the most frightening thing to have under your bed, right? Right. Now, as I was looking through this, I found the etymologist Mark Forsyth, again, another language expert from the UK. According to him, the boogeyman is part of all of this also. And uh, he brought up the point that there was a golfer uh, somewhere around the late 19th century, a golfer named um, Dr. Thomas Brown, who was out playing the course and he couldn't get the song The Boogeyman out of his head, popular song of the day. And he blamed his poor golfing on the fact that the song was running through his head and he was focusing more on this song than he was on his golf game. And since he got such a high score, apparently they started applying the word bogey to being one over par. So if you uh, are golfing poorly, it's a bogey. And if you double bogey, that's two over par and triple and so on. Um, That was the origin of that. So it sneaks into the world of golfing too. Curses always Humphrey Bogart. It was called Bogey, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Utterly unconnected. <laughs> well, it got generally spread to mean any imaginary terror. So if other people that you were talking about uh, had fears that you thought were irrational, you could belittle them by saying that there's just a, a bug. You're afraid of a bug. So the meaning relating to insects, specifically beetles, may be completely unrelated. It may not have emerged out of this earlier form at all, but it comes out in the 17th century and is especially applied to bed bugs. And of course, that's one of the most detested kinds of bugs, constantly problem. One of the more interesting things about bed bugs, I've learned from experiences with my daughter having had an apartment get infested with them, is that there are dogs now who can be trained to smell bed bugs. If you suspect you might have bed bugs, they can actually come in and detect exactly where they are. But anyway, um, the term bug is not really a scientific term, although some scientists use the term true bug. And here's the scientific definition. Any of the order Hemiptera, and especially of its suborder Heteroptera, of insects that have sucking mouth parts, four wings thickened at the base, and that lack a pupil stage between the immature stages and the adult. <laughs> Boy, that's specific. Very few people that talk about true bugs in that way. Mm. Yeah. So a bug gets used all the time for all kinds of insects, and some people might say that a spider is not a bug. Um, It's just one of those loose, casual terms that's used for all kinds of things. Not a scientific term. No. But it's always had a special meaning for me because I grew up reading Walt Disney's comics and stories. It was a wonderful collection of tales about Scrooge McDuck and Mickey Mouse and all kinds of other characters um, in the uh, late 40s and early 50s. And they often featured a little feature about Bucky Bug. 
and it was set in a junkyard. There have been quite a few traditions in comics and in children's books of miniature settings where the characters, the teeny, teeny weenies or you know, little tiny creatures who are living among the uh, tin cans or other debris of humanity. And these bugs lived in Bugville, which is uh, a dump, and uh, live houses that are made out of pieces of debris. And, and what was fascinating about it to me as a kid was not really the stories, which were simplistic, but just the scale of things, the idea of this miniature little world with being surrounded by giant things, which, you know, if, if I'd been a little older, I would have been thinking about Batman. <laughs> See, in the 50s Batman, he was often confronted with huge objects like a pencil that was 50 feet long or something. Anyway, and his uh, girlfriend, later wife, was Junebug. And um, the unique feature of this was that the stories were always told in rhyme. And uh, that made him kind of tedious, actually. <laughs> but um, some of them are being reprinted now by the current publisher of Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, so they've come back. So the connection with insects has been around for quite a while. It's the main one that people know about. But if your eyes bug out, they look like bugs' eyes, right? So if you look at a, a fly's eyes, for instance, you see that they have these orbs that stick out. And so it bulging eyes. Um, and the idea is, they said it made his eyes bug out. That's to convey astonishment. The person is truly surprised when their eyes bug out. The first citation that the OED has is from Mark Twain in 1877. And uh, that was interesting. It's kind of an obscure one. I'm not going to go into what he actually said. But he probably picked it up from elsewhere as well. I doubt he invented it. Mm -hmm. But I ran across another use by Twain of the word bug that was interesting that gets quoted a lot. It's one of those sayings that gets attributed to him that's actually by him for a change. <laughs> the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> which really appeals to me as somebody interested in language. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. Um, we're all familiar, I think, with the spray insecticides called the bug bombs. Mm -hmm. um, and then it used to be much more common in the 60s and 70s, but people still know what the car called the bug is. Uh, Volkswagen Beetle. In Germany, they called it a kafer. And uh, in France, it was called the coccinelle, ladybug. And a ladybug in England, or in, in British English, is a ladybird. I've never understood why. It seems so obviously more a bug than a bird. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> evidently they use both um, in the UK. But I've certainly run into ladybird fairly often. Um, and I don't know whether that had any connection with uh, Lyndon Johnson's wife being called ladybird. Unless um, she thought of her as an insect or simply as a little cute little bird or something. She was rather imposing woman. So I have no idea how she got the nickname. So then by the 19th century, bug got a, quite a different use. Um, people being obsessed by an idea, bitten by the comic collecting bug. Okay, that's me. <laughs> I don't collect comic books, but I collect comic strips as they are 
reprinted in bound volumes. Um, so any kind of a mania can be referred to as a bug, and that's still fairly common. Yeah, and you get bitten by this bug. This is about two centuries after the word started to be applied to little bugs, little insects, and now you can actually be bitten metaphorically by some other bug that's out there. Which is interesting if you go back to the first instance we talked about that was something to be afraid of and flee from and now this is something to be obsessed by and gather up as much as you can of it well it's as if it comes and bites you and it injects its juices into you and that's your affliction right right yeah in the 20s the dance enthusiasts were referred to as jitterbugs <laughs> and i presume the dancing was the jitter and they were had the bug for doing it Sure, that's the style of dancing, like the Lindy Hop or these particularly lively dances where the dancers hardly even touch the floor. It seems to be that it's almost as the floor is, is, uh, it will electrocute you or something and uh, your feet just hop around like that. Right. So, and it's got extended to other obsessions too. So we have the term litter bug. In that case, I'm not sure that it's somebody obsessed with throwing stuff out the car window or if it's just that they're acting like some messy insect. I'm not sure what the association is there. But a firebug is definitely an obsession, somebody that is a pyromaniac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the late 19th century, people used the word bug juice to describe bad whiskey. And you still see that occasionally is almost a childish reference to something that you you find disgusting to taste, to drink. Just call it bug juice. Mm-hmm. But in 1889, in the Mall Gazette, there is an interesting account which gets cited in the OED. Mr. Edison, this is Thomas Edison, I was informed, had been up the two previous nights discovering a bug in his phonograph an expression for solving a difficulty and implying that some imaginary insect has secreted itself inside and is causing all the trouble. Mm-hmm. It's not absolutely clear that that was the analogy that Edison had in mind, that he really thought uh, it was like an insect being in there, but that makes sense. But it is clear that he's the one that invented it and popularized the notion that some malfunction in a piece of machinery and in modern times in a computer program is called a bug. And this is also uh, associated with the computer programmer who created the first compiler, Grace Hopper, a rear admiral in the Navy. Okay. Part of her lore was, this is way later, this is 1947, so this is 58 years after this was reported with Edison. Uh, she was working on a computer with her group, and they came across a moth a literal moth that was stuck in the machinery. (laughs) And when they removed it, the machinery started working again. And uh, some people refer to that as the first instance of debugging, is literally removing that moth out of that machine. Hmm. I believe it's part of lore just to associate it with Grace Hopper, who, of course, is a legendary computer programmer. Yeah, I almost wonder if that's not urban legend. but (laughs) Sure, that could be completely... (laughs) Because the technical people have been using bug in that sense for a long time before that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Also, in the early 20th century, people began to refer to germs as bugs. I've got a bug. You got the flu bug. Um, 
and it can mean the disease uh, as well as the germ that causes the disease. So, you know, I picked up some bugs from that dirty countertop and I'm in bed with a bug and that use is certainly widespread. In 1925, a burglar alarm system was referred to by criminals in their slang as a bug. Uh, so that if somebody is detecting that a house has been intruded in using a system that sets off an alarm, that was called a bug. But later, that was extended to concealed microphones or other devices for surreptitiously listening in on somebody. And eventually, of course, not only in rooms, but on phones and uh, other devices where you could pick up sound. And then it becomes a verb, of course, to bug the apartment of a suspect, something you can do. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to verb uses. So in the 19th century, you could bug your garden, which actually is <laughs> debugging, but to bug it is to clear the insects off of your plants not something that's used anymore. Uh, in the mid 20th century, it developed into a very familiar form that we all know, to annoy or irritate. So an early citation from 1949 that the OED gives fascinated me because it's from the Music Library Association notes. My wife is a retired music librarian and she belongs to the Music Library Association and subscribes to notes. So we actually get this periodical at our home. And um, in 1949, they defined bug, popularized by swing musicians and now much used by beboppers to be annoying. Mm. So um, the jitterbugs, they're gone, but the beboppers have replaced them. And they're saying that they're bugged when they don't like something. So we use it in expressions like, what's bugging you, bothering you? And the parents say, don't bug your sister which is a little milder. And then there's a more modern use, which is different, to bug out, meaning to scram, flee. And then later, you could tell somebody, bug off, get out of here, or bug out, get away. You're bugging me. So the two different uses of bug there. So bug, it could almost seem like bug is being used here as a substitute for the F word. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what may have gone out. And that happens more than once in language. Sure. In the UK, uh, bugger off is, yes, it sounds much less vulgar to us than it does to them, I think. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about bugger off later, but yeah. Yeah. There's an odd use that um, you run into occasionally. Put a bug in your ear. Let me put a bug in your ear, which is to suggest something by hinting at it subtly. So I'm just giving you a little suggestion here. I'm just putting a little bug in your ear. Um, but that reminded me of the first time I encountered bugs related to ears, which is in Rabelais, Gargantua and Pantagruel, mm. in which one of the characters is said to have a pouce en l'oreille, a flea in his ear. And the flea in the ear in that context is an obsession, mostly an erotic desire. And that continues to exist in English. So I don't think that ever got translated into American English, but it's sort of suggestive of the same idea of an insect being somebody here, giving somebody an idea. 
which reminded me in turn of the recent uh, word earworm, which is a term for a, a bit of music that is just so catchy, although perhaps annoying, that you can't forget it. It just keeps going round and round in your brain as if it were a worm burrowing into your skull. So it's called an earworm. While I was browsing around looking for other bugs, I discovered there's a river bug in Central Europe that flows from, I think, Ukraine into Poland. And then there is bugger, which we talked about a little moment ago. It technically means, to put it politely, to sodomize someone. And the crime in some laws was the crime of buggery. Now, where this comes from is really interesting. It doesn't really connect with earlier uses of the word bug. Uh, back in the Middle Ages, there was a new religion that developed called the Albigensian religion, and it was especially popular in southern France in the Provençal region, and also in other areas, including Bulgaria. And it's the name of the Bulgarians that gives rise to this particular one. And the Catholics at that time tended to view other religions as simply heresies, that they were failures at being true Christians, where actually Albigensianism, or Catharism so-called, was more of a new religion than it was just a variation on Christianity. But at any rate, Albigensians uh, in some sects were very ascetic, and the males who made up the priesthood and so on were not supposed to marry, not supposed to have sex, abstain entirely from any kind of sexual contact with women. Now, the Catholic critics of these people accuse them of being gay, we would say, homosexuals, because they wouldn't have to do with women, and thought that they were engaging in all sorts of forbidden sexual practices, including buggery. They use the word buggery as in Bulgarianism, as it were, which was completely unfair, of course, because the whole thing about the Albigensians was this abhorrence of the physical world and the yearning to be pure spirit. But there's a long tradition of this, and if you look at the history of Catholicism struggles with heresy, um, all heretics tend to be accused of having orgies and doing all sorts of awful things, which is in its turn ironic because when Christianity first emerged in the Roman Empire, there were all kinds of myths about uh, the Christian mass actually being an orgy and they had these fantastic stories about how in the church they would tie a dog with a rope to a candle. The candle was lighting up the scene and then they would scare away the dog, the candle would go out and all the worshipers would fall on each other and have a massive orgy. <laughs> so, which is complete nonsense, but it was remarkably popular. <laughs> the Catholics adopted the same practice of accusing anybody that they disliked of being uh, wildly sexual. And that's where the buggers came from. So uh, it became hugely popular in England. I'm not sure when it reached its peak. You know, the polite publication didn't include words like this until the 20th century. But it becomes so overused that it has become rather mild in English usage. So you can say that an annoying or a silly person is a bugger and often you could say sort of affectionately, he's a funny old bugger. And if you want to get somebody to go away, you tell them, bugger off. And if you make a mess of things, you can bugger it up, which is obviously one of those substitutes with, for the F word. 
And then there's a very almost empty expression when there's nothing or nothing left or it's just completely emptied. Um, it's bugger all. They took everything and left me with bugger all. It's just nothing. So it's gotten, um, it's just pretty much emptied of meaning and nobody remembers except a few etymologists and medievalists that had anything to do with Bulgarians. To be bugs used to be mean also to be crazy. And uh, a lot of people have encountered that in one form or another. A lunatic asylum, as they used to call homes for the insane or mentally disturbed places, was called a bug house. And um, there was an association between madness, insanity, mental disturbance, and comedy from a very early date. The whole idea of the jester in Shakespearean drama, for instance, is the guy who is at the court is acting crazy but saying clever things that uh, are amusing. And so we have in the early 20th century the Looney Tunes. They're sort of crazy and wacky and funny, right? And one of their stars is Bugs Bunny. And he's uh, Bugs because he acts crazy, supposedly. Although, if you really look at Bugs Bunny, he's really smart. He drives other people crazy. He's, he's not so crazy himself. Daffy Duck is more Bugs than Bugs is, and he really acts crazy. So uh, Elmer Fudd gets bugged by Bugs Bunny. Then there's a nickname you get also that's a sort of crazy notion. The gangster Benjamin Siegel was called Bugsy mm -hmm. as his nickname because he behaved erratically. Um, there was a 1976 British gangster film, very odd, featuring only child actors, including Jodie Foster, um, and it was called Bugsy Malone. And uh, that was, of course, borrowing the Bugsy nickname back from Bugsy Siegel. If you remember the old series, The Beverly Hillbillies, which began in 1962, they came from the town of Bug Tussle. And you might think, okay, they just made that up. Actually, there is a, a real Texas unincorporated village, tiny little place called Bug Tussle. And two words, they used Bug Tussle was one word in Beverly Hillbillies, but it's two words. And uh, we'll put a link up so you can see what Bug Tussle looked like. Okay. All right. It was around uh, at least a decade before the Beverly Hillbillies. So I'm sort of running out of important uses of the word bug, but it's been interesting following the trail of all these bugs. Well, you've definitely given me the bug bug here, and I'm going to go out and find some more stuff. I'm especially interested in that early part where uh, the origins of this has to do with scary ghosts or spirits or things like that. And this long trail of the word in all these different permutations. It's all really interesting stuff. So, yeah, thank you, Paul, for sharing all this with us. Yeah, that was fun. All right. We'll talk to you next time. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.